Please pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for this glorious, beautiful Sunday morning, and thankful for everyone here and those listening online. And uh, we ask you, God, as we look into your word today, that we would even catch a glimpse of how glorious you are, and it would cause our hearts to, to worship you and to revere you, to love you, and to live our lives all the more for you, for Christ, our Savior and Lord, in his name. Amen. Well, it's good to know what our purpose in life is, isn't it? And God is good to reveal that to us in his word. Otherwise, we would be, we would be lost. Isn't that right? The evangelist Ray Comfort was interviewing uh, someone a while back and um, witnessing to a friendly man who acknowledged um, that he was an agnostic, a spiritual person. And uh, he claimed not to be lost. But then as uh, Ray Comfort was asking him questions, um, he confessed that he doesn't know where he came from. And he doesn't know why he's here. And he doesn't know where he's going. And uh, Ray Comfort gently informed him that that's actually the very definition of being lost. So what is the purpose of our lives? Why do we exist? Or as the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Answer? Oh, thank you, <laughs> To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's right. And the Bible tells us this. As we read God's Word and we understand Scripture, He tells us that's the purpose, what we're here for, along with where we're going and where we came from. So God reveals all of this to us in His Word because He wants us to know, rather than spend our entire lives wondering and wandering, forever searching and journeying, never sure what we're living for or where we're going. He's revealed these fundamental answers in the Bible, which is his love letter to us, uh, one way to look at it. Uh, and it's so we can walk with him, our creator, enjoy fellowship and relationship with him, and living our lives united to him. And that's bringing glory to God. That's the purpose. He created us and all things, every single thing in the universe for, to live connected to him worshiping and knowing him all of our days. So I want to tell you that our joy and fulfillment in life is tied to God's glory. Okay, there's, there's no such thing as true joy or happiness or fulfillment apart from the glory of God and knowing him. Okay, that would go against the very purpose for which he created everything in the first place. So the Westminster Catechism, along with other great thinkers like Jonathan Edwards, they saw glorifying God and our joy as two sides of the same coin. Okay, they're not two separate things like mm, my joy, my happiness over here, and well, I got to glorify God too. Like, like they're two competing things. Uh, that's, that's not the case. Um, although it seems like that's the case sometimes. And we were made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. 
Jonathan Edwards, quote, he says, God, in seeking his glory, therein seeks the good of his creatures. Because the emanation of his glory implies the communicated excellency and happiness of his creature. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks himself. And in seeking himself, that is, himself displayed and expressed, he seeks their glory and happiness, end quote. All right, that's a bit of a heavy quote for, uh, you know, first thing on Sunday morning, but hopefully you're tracking uh, the thought there. God's glory and, and our joy are not separate. We're created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. So today, as we conclude our Genesis 1 through 11, God's story of beginnings series, uh, I want to just uh, kind of give a, a, an overview of the the seven seas of history uh, that we've been going over these last nine months. And um, we covered the first four that are found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And uh, the theme, uh, the title today is Magnifying the Glory of God Through the Seas of History. When I say seas, I don't mean like the ocean. I mean capital C, right? Uh, Words that begin with the letter C. So those of you who are here for the first time, I'm going to explain that all. But... The big idea today is that God will cause all things to work together for the good of his people in order to bring glory to his own name. And that's like, that's kind of the theme of the whole Bible. God will cause all things in the universe to work together for the good of his people in order to glorify his own name. And so... The seven seas of history, this is um, pretty much taken from Answers in Genesis, that wonderful creation um, ministry by Ken Ham. It's Answers in Genesis' catchy way to help people remember the big events that we find in the Bible. And these big events that, that will affect or that have affected the entire universe. And it's this huge, epic, grand picture. And so these seas... Uh, help us to just kind of remember what the storyline is. Okay? It gives an overview of the, of, the, of the whole big idea. And so we've been over creation and corruption and catastrophe and confusion, which was last Sunday. And then the rest of the C's are Christ, the cross, and consummation. Okay? So when you think about the Bible, that kind of covers the, the, the big events. Not everything but it, it, it gives you a, a good overall picture uh, of what's happening there through those events in his story. So today we're going to kind of review, revisit, and uh, as we do, uh, I want to highlight how God is glorified through all of these things, and it's all leading up to Christ and the cross and uh, the consummation of everything, and uh, that will lead us into our, our time at the communion table, another C word for you. All right, and there's actually another couple C's that I added um, just to the Answers in Genesis thing, which I'm not going to talk about too much today. But um, next Sunday, by the way, we're going to do a one-off sermon about uh, church membership. And then the Sunday after that is when we're going to begin our next book, um, First Thessalonians. Okay, so that's the lay of the land for you the next uh, couple Sundays. So let's look at and magnify God's glory in these incredible events of 
history, the bird's eye view today, uh, as we went in depth uh, these last several months, but um, we want to we want to go back and, and look at a few things here. So first is the glory of God in creation. The glory of God in creation. Genesis 1 and 2. The very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Out of nothing, God spoke and created everything. Okay? Atheists, as I once was many years ago, um, believe in the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. Whereas the Bible says that the Lord God Almighty, He brought the entire universe into being. Part of the definition of of God, of what it is to be God, is that He is the author of all life. And therefore, He is the authority over all of life. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the what? The glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of God. Of his hands. Okay, in other words, the creation shouts out that there is one glorious, almighty creator who made and designed all things in the universe. And he did it ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. Out of nothing. Me being a, a music guy, as most of you are aware, um, I'm incredibly impressed by a number of composers in history. Uh, But Beethoven stands out uh, a bit because he started losing his hearing at around age 30. He was born in 1770, so around 1798 he started losing his hearing. And so that means he composed the Fifth Symphony, right? He composed most of that as he was losing his hearing, almost deaf. The Sixth Symphony, which me and Joseph were listening to on the way to orchestra rehearsal yesterday, beautiful pastoral symphony grand, epic, just uh, wonderful stuff. Furry Lease, right? And, and the glorious Ninth Symphony, the epic, grand, uh, amazing, just groundbreaking symphony that he wrote, uh, almost completely deaf. And so all those notes and rhythms and combinations and arrangements heard in his head, he pulled out of the universe of sound, so to speak, and putting them down on paper, to me, it's mind-boggling. But as we consider who created the entire universe, who even gave good old Ludwig von Beethoven the ability to, to make that kind of music, um, the same God who gave Moses his mouth to speak, and the same God who gave us all of our abilities and blessings that we have in life. This is God, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, imago Dei, in the image of God. Uh, because of that, we have creative abilities. Okay, we, have, we have been given those as those made in the image of God, along with other communicable attributes of God. And so he says in Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I'm not going to get into it again, but just a reminder for everyone in 21st century America that there are two genders, male and female, man and woman. What is a woman? A woman is an adult female human being. What is a female? XX chromosomes, able to give birth. And so um, there's that. 
But the point is this, that we know where we came from. The Lord God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. And so why did God create us, and why did he give us our abilities and everything that we have in life? Revelation 4.11, listen to this song that is sung in heaven. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God created us and all things in the entire universe in order to bring glory to himself. That's the big idea today. That we would find our greatest joy in knowing and glorifying him. Once again, they're tied in together. Your joy and God's glory. John Piper helpfully says, In creating the world, God was to spill over and share what the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is enjoying and knowing. Putting that, putting his glory on display, making that go public in souls that are created in his image in such a way that we have the capacity for knowing the most magnificently knowable God and enjoying the most supremely enjoyable God, end quote. See, God is the only one in the universe who is worthy of such a Revelation 4:11 song and Revelation 5 scripture that Pastor Bill read earlier of such never-ending, perfect, holy, devoted love and praise because he's the one who created all things in the universe. Birds and bees and stars and seas and kittens and puppies and grandmas and babies and everything, sights and sounds and tongue and taste and touch and feel, sun, moon and stars and all the billions and billions of galaxies in the universe. Okay, For us to know this God, to know himself, is cause for joy. It's cause for joy to know this almighty being personally. We're not lost, we're not confused, we're not ignorant about where we came from and, and how we got here. We're, we're not mixed up by the lies of evolutionary theory. God revealed truth to us and we rejoice in that truth. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, end quote. And this is why we get so happy when our team wins the Super Bowl, right? What do we end up doing? Jumping up, those of us who are interested in the game, we jump up out of our seats, we're cheering, we're praising the team, and we're praising specific players for the, for the winning plays that they made and the good plays that they did. Hey, there's, there's lots of examples of this, but our praise completes the enjoyment. Right? And there's tons of things that, that we praise in life, right? whether it's musicians or actors or celebrities or one another or a good thing that happened. And our, our, our praise of that completes our enjoyment of it. And obviously, God is the only one who is worthy of ultimate praise and rejoicing in, as Revelation in the whole Bible says. As the one true creator God, the heavens will be eternally and joyfully singing his praises. Okay, so there's, there's the glory of God in creation. And we could go on a lot longer, but the next one is corruption. Corruption, Genesis chapter 3. 
The fall of man is what we're talking about when we talk about that second C, right? Corruption. The fall of man. Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. Okay? Um, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, okay, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12. If you don't know that verse, you need to start it, highlight it, underline it, write it down. And it goes back to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And this is just truth, isn't it? A God who loves us and so tells us what is true. He doesn't tell us lies or try to flatter us, right? Just lift up our, our self-esteem. No, he just tells us like it is. He reveals why we are the way we are, why the world is the way it is, why the news is just constantly filled with, with bad news. The Bible tells us why there is sin and suffering and sorrow and death in the world okay, versus, versus the lies that are out there in culture and society. Um, let me give you a quick example of that. Uh, there's a guy named David Harrell who wrote a book called Why America Hates Biblical Christianity. And he's writing about um, uh, a guy, uh, an article that he read by a, a, a professing Christian He's the director of the Nola Wesley Foundation, which is the United Methodist Campus Ministry at Loyola University in New Orleans. Okay? His name is Morgan Guyton. So this professing Christian wrote this article, and I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. He writes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez summarized one of my core religious convictions in a speech given on February 27, 2020, in a hearing about religious freedom. She said, I know, and it is part of my faith, that all people are holy and all people are sacred, unconditionally, period. And he writes, it's the kind of theological declaration that I would have mocked as unserious pedestrian liberalism when I was an evangel evangelical. But the beauty of her sincere conviction utterly pierced my heart when I watched her speech to say that all people are holy is the polar opposite of the core evangelical doctrine that all people are totally depraved by nature. And yet I think it's an absolutely Christian thing to believe. It's such a different Christianity when the first thing we say is all people are holy. And instead of worrying about correcting other people, we decide to act as though God thinks they're gorgeously fabulous exactly as they are. Honestly, I think that when I live with that conviction, I do a better job of correcting my own sin along the way. If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's faith is the future of American Christianity, then that's a faith worth fighting for, end quote. This is from a professing Christian leader and thinker and writer. Professing. Um, that's a lie. Uh, and, and even though most people in the world might not say that they think people, human beings, are holy, um, but almost everyone would say that they think people are, are generally good. And that's also a lie. Um, according to the 2022 Ligonier State of Theology Survey, 65% of evangelicals, evangelicals, people in churches like in our kind of broad camp. 65% of evangelicals in America believe everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 
Is that true? That's the question. Uh, the Bible would tell, tell us different, wouldn't it? The fall of man uh, in the Garden of Eden changed everything. The first pair of people, Adam and Eve, were created good, okay, even very good, according to Genesis 131. Yet, they listened to the lies of the serpent, Satan. They distrusted God's truth, and the re- they rebelled against God by eating the one forbidden fruit. See, that, that was the corruption of the entire human race after them. Okay? Every human being has inherited a sin nature. We're sinners by nature and by choice. Okay? We're not sinners because we sin, folks. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we do outside of Christ. Okay? Someone asked a, a godly theologian, uh, a long time ago, I forget which one it was, but they, they asked him, what's the greatest problem in the world? And he said, me, I am. And he was acknowledging the, the reality of sin in the world and in every human being. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and everyone falls short of the glory of God. And one way to think about that, because sometimes we're not exactly sure, what do you mean, fall short of the glory of God? Um, One way to think about that is we no longer bear God's glorious image perfectly, the way that we were meant to, the way that we were made to. We fall short of God's glory. We are deficient due to our depravity. We are as far away from God's glory and holy standard as the world record holder in long jumping is to to making it across the Grand Canyon. So you might be asking now, or at least you should be, uh, how is God glorified in the corruption of man, the fall of man? Well, the answer is that God is sovereign. He is in absolute control of all things. Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, did not take him by surprise. And he ordained even sin and evil. He allows Satan to enter into the world. And this was how his glorious plan of redemption and rescue comes into effect. Okay? Um, Galatians 3.15, or Genesis 3.15. Listen, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, as he's pronouncing his judgments and curses on Satan and the man and the woman, He says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, first glimpse, hint of the gospel in the scriptures. The promise of the seed of the woman, a one who will come to crush and defeat Satan, and defeat sin, and defeat death. Through this plan, God's divine attributes are able to be displayed in fullest measure. This is the other part of the the glorious ordaining of of sin and evil into the world to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is the grand opening of Ephesians chapter 1. So in this plan, what is put on display? What is made known about God? A number of things. His utter wrath, but also his unfathomable mercy his true justice, and also his amazing grace, his righteousness, perfect righteousness, 
and his unending loving kindness. His holy hatred for sin and his forgiving love for sinners. I could go on and on, but this is the glory of God in the corruption. Okay, let's move on here to the next C. Catastrophe. Catastrophe, Genesis 6 through 9. What do we say, mean when we say catastrophe? We're talking about the flood. The flood, the universal worldwide destruction due to Genesis 6 verse 5. Just as a quick reminder, why did God bring the flood upon the earth? Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So corruption is a good word to describe. Um, what we just went over before, and now comes the catastrophe. And God's glory is shown in this catastrophe, in the demonstration of his action against all the wickedness that was going on in Noah's time. Okay? He is a just God who hates sin. And the flood shows that he's deadly serious about judging sinful man. Okay? So he destroys, he kills Every man, woman, and child in the entire earth, except for Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. This global catastrophe that God poured out in holy anger was an illustration of the truth that human depravity is worldwide. It's worldwide. No one is immune from sin. And it shows that God is wrathful against that sin, along with Along with that, God's saving of Noah and his family shows God's grace and mercy towards sinners. Noah was a righteous man, it says in the Bible. He believed in God, but to be clear, as we found out after the flood, he was a sinner, just like all of us. So remember 6, verse 8, Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor, or grace, in the eyes of the Lord. That's what it says. God is utterly wrathful, yet he is amazingly gracious. And God is glorified in displaying that very attribute. And through such destructive calamity of the flood, where he saves eight people in the ark of salvation. And so, last thing here on this point, God is also glorified in, in showing his faithfulness. Right? He keeps his promise. Genesis 3.15, that line of the promised seed is kept alive through Noah and through his descendants. So this promised seed, this Savior, this someone who will take care of their sin problem, that, that promise is, is kept. The line is kept alive in the ark. But not before another major event in history happens. Okay? Uh, the line will continue. But next is confusion. Confusion is what we went over last uh, Sunday. The Tower of Babel event in history. And as we said, it shows us the origin of languages and families and nations and lands. Um, and so these, these people, uh, it gave us the origin story on all of that. But we saw man living and seeking his own glory, his own name. They settle instead of scattering. They build a city together. They try to build a tower up to God or up to the heavens, not to God, really. God is actually pushed out or forgotten about or ignored. Why is that? Because just like us today, we want what we want, and we want it for us. So God is out of the picture. But 
God is glorified once again. He shows his great mercy even in his judgments. So he confuses that one language that they all spoke in the entire earth that time, and he confuses them. I don't know what that sounds like or what that looks like, but all of a sudden they couldn't understand each other, so they're forced to scatter. They're forced to do what God commanded them to do in the first place, what is for their own good and ultimate fulfillment and joy and satisfaction, not to stay and be together and be inward, but to go upward and outward for God. And so that's what God does. And his faithful character is seen once again through the table of nations and through the line of Shem comes continues the promised seed, the line of the promised seed and the, the Hebrews, and that leads to the man Abraham, Abram, who is the father of who becomes the father of Israel, and the line of the promised seed and the Savior would continue. And so God is glorified through that confusion, that Tower of Babel scene and incident by showing his mercy, his wisdom, and his faithfulness. Okay, so what's all this leading to? Well, it leads to what we're celebrating today at the communion table. Christ, the cross, and the consummation of all things, okay, the return of Christ. But um, let's, let's go over these briefly. Christ, um, this means the anointed one. Okay? Christ is not Jesus' last name, in case some of you are mistaken about that. Um, it's a title, Jesus the Christ. Right? He is the anointed, promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the Savior of man's sins. He is the promised seed from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. And so we want to understand this throughout the Old Testament, bit by bit, little by little, more and more information was given to God's people about this promised seed, this Savior, this Messiah, this one who would come to take care of man's problem of sin. And there's another seed that comes before Christ that I want to throw in here real quick, uh, which I've touched on here and there during the series, but that other seed is covenants. Covenants. This comes between um, just the time of uh, Abraham and all the way throughout the Old Testament and the history of Israel and the covenants. We talked about these major covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and lastly, the New Covenant. And the gist of them all were that God made certain promises to Israel, his people, which included both physical and spiritual aspects And we believe that he will keep those promises to Israel, just like he kept them in the Old Testament and into the New. And there are some yet to be fulfilled, and so he will keep them in the future. But one important thread that runs through all these covenants was that through Israel, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the ultimate blessing that that refers to is that the Savior of the world would come from Israel. All right, so Galatians 3, verse 8. Galatians 3, 8 says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. It's very specific, saying the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, contains the gospel, the good news of salvation, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, to all sinners, And this was the particular blessing that would come through the Jews, come through Israel, and spread out to to the Gentile nations, all the nations of the world. And so part of that, those covenants were the laws given to Israel and the sacrificial system that he gave to his people, the sacrificing of animals to atone for their sins. And this happened over and over, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, 
blood all over the place to give Israel a picture of the seriousness of sin that it cost death and blood in order to make amends for the sins of man. But, of course, animals would not suffice to truly and ultimately atone for the sins of man, so what's going to happen? Well, in due time, God would send the promised seed, the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the King, who is a servant, who lays down his life, the Christ, to pay the price of the sins of the world. He was the only perfect and only acceptable sacrifice that could be made, human sacrifice, who could be made to God, as he was the Son of God himself. So finally, as John one twenty nine, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, he was the anointed one that all the Old Testament promises and prophecies were looking to and leading to. He's the culmination of the story. All of history points to him. One scholar, J. Barton Payne, found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. There's another uh, scholar, Alfred Edersheim, who found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. So the gospel comes in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and what glory there was and is to be seen in this person, capital P, this God-man, this, this word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And as John writes, we beheld, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we can spend a lot of time talking about that, but just let those words just uh, wash over you. The glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, God's glory. We're magnifying God's glory through these seas of history. And Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, proving that God's word is faithful and true, that is the person of Christ. But part of the gospel is not only the person who Jesus is, but also what he has done on our behalf. And that leads us to where? To the cross. Who Jesus is, what he has done, the cross, what he came to do. He came to earth living a perfectly holy, sinless, undefiled life, doing God the Father's will entirely, loving and serving and preaching and reaching out to wretched, wicked sinners. He lived as such so that he could die on a cross. He was crucified by sinful men. A Jew and Gentile all took part in that going willingly to sacrifice himself to pay for our sins with his own life's blood. That was the price for our forgiveness, our redemption, our salvation, the blood of Jesus. And as as his body is, is broken, broken down, having been beaten and whipped and scourged and slapped and bloodied to an unrecognizable mess, hanging on that cross, what's actually happening He's receiving the Father's full wrath and fury against your sin and my sin. He's taking the blame for us, though he is completely innocent. He's substituting himself, sacrificing his own life so that we might live. See, that's, that's how the promised seed, the Savior, okay, the Messiah, crushed the head of Satan. And that is how Jesus won the victory over sin and death and hell. 
And he did it by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. The glory of God is shown at the cross. His perfect love demonstrated in due time. While we were helpless, while we were ungodly, God showed his own love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. The old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. Verse 3 says, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Is there anything more glorious than the Prince of Glory dying for lowly, depraved sinners? Psalm 85.10 says, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Do we see God's glory ever more clearly displayed than at the cross of Jesus Christ? His attributes of holiness and love meeting there. It's been well said, since God is good and sin must be punished, either the punishment For your sins will fall on your own head or they will fall upon the head of Jesus Christ on that cross. He beckons you, those of you who are not saved this morning, he beckons you, he calls you, he commands you even to repent and believe in his son who offers himself, he offers to take your guilt and your blame so that you can go free. And God will be the one who receives all the glory for salvation, right? Because it's all a gift of his grace, not of your good works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by, faith, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Listen, John, Jesus says in John chapter 1, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, in other words, salvation is all of God. From our daily bread, quote, Dr. Harry Ironside told the story of a new convert who gave his testimony at a church service. With great joy, he told how he had been delivered from a life of sin. He gave all the glory to God, saying nothing about his own merits or anything he had done to deserve his salvation. The man in charge of the service was a legalistic man who did not appreciate the reality of salvation by grace through faith apart from human works. So he responded to the young man's testimony by saying, You seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. Didn't you do your part? Before God did his, the new Christian jumped to his feet and said, Oh, yes, I did. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took out after me and ran me down. That was his part. Ironside observed, It was well put and tells a story that every redeemed sinner understands. End quote. That is the glory of God. Jesus at the cross. He did all the work to purchase salvation and eternal life for us. It is finished. All we can do is repent and trust in him. Now, 
Satan might have thought that he had the victory over Jesus at the cross, um, but of course he was wrong because Jesus' death was not the end of the story, for he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and uh, tells us later in the Bible that he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God right now. But this is all leading to consummation. Consummation. And uh, the definition of consummation is the point at which something is complete or finalized. The point at which something is complete or finalized. That's what we mean when we say consummation. And God tells us how it's going to be finalized or completed or fulfilled at the end. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. You don't have to go there, but please jot it down. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. That's Jesus, to dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, through Jesus, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. That is the power of the cross. That is the power of Christ Jesus. All things in the entire universe will be reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's so specific there. Paul refers to the gospel. And I'm not going to go over the brief eschatology about what's going to come at the end. I'm tempted to, but we're running out of time. So listen. Uh, The point is this, everyone who has repented and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can look forward to the consummation of all things in the future. The curse is going to be removed. The curse that happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, uh, which has wrecked us since then, uh, it's going to be taken away. God will bring in the new heavens and the new earth for his children. It's going to be no more death or sorrow, or suffering, or crying, or pain, Revelation 21.4. Instead, what will there be in heaven? Endless joy, and peace, and happiness, and love, and delight, and fulfillment. A unending newness, as one pastor put it. It's not going to be a bore. It's going to be unendingly new, over and over and over and over again, discovering. So what is the chief end of man, dear people? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you don't yet know that um, this morning, please understand why God wants you to know why you're here, why you exist. It's to glorify God who made you and to enjoy him forever. That's heaven. Okay, we're going to be singing that spectacular song with the angels and with one another um, that followed the scripture reading that Brother Bill read earlier. Revelation 5, 12 and 14. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It feels like he could have added even more and more words there, but all of that. And then verse 14 says, And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Okay, that's heaven. And all are going to say amen, and all will bow down in loving worship of our glorious God. Those who believe in Jesus are going to be doing it willingly and cheerfully and gladly. And those who don't know him, they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord too. Their tongue will confess, their knee will bow down, but they will be doing it unwillingly, in judgment, in condemnation. And so this is the end of our sermon series, dear folks. Magnifying the glory of God through the seas of history. 
God will cause all things in the universe to work together for the good of his people in order to bring glory to his own name. That's the way he made it. Heavenly Father, it seems feeble our attempts to speak of your glory and to communicate that, of your, your weightiness, God, your, your worth, your significance. And yet, God, I pray that we've tasted a little, caught a glimpse of, of you through the looking at your, the, the big storyline of your word. Thank you so much, God, for revealing that to us and that we can continue to learn and, and grow and, and uh, do this together and even into eternity, which we look forward to doing without sin and without any limitations that hinder us and in true love and devotion and, and worship of you. But we're grateful, God, for this time and how all of this leads to honoring you and, and glorifying you in obedience to the commands of Christ and the decree of Christ, the ordaining of the church to observe communion. And we're thankful that uh, we can remember and celebrate the beautiful and precious person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, and that you have given this, uh, this ordinance to us uh, so that we would know you better and in a spiritual, particular way um, experience your presence and also, God, to bring us together as a, a church body in, in spiritual unity centered on the precious gospel. So thank you so much, God, for, for your word written and for the living word, our Savior Jesus. And we lift up this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen.